0: Dombey and Son chapter 32 This libravox recording is in the public domain reading by Brad Philopone Dombey and Son by Charles Dickens chapter 32 The wooden midshipman goes to pieces Honest captain Cuttle as the weeks flew over him in his fortified retreat by no means abated any of his prudent provisions against surprise because of the non-appearance of the enemy. The captain argued that his present security was too profound and wonderful to endure much longer. He knew that when the wind stood in a fair quarter, the weathercock was seldom nailed there, and he was too well acquainted with the determined and dauntless character of Mrs. Mixtinger to doubt that that heroic woman had devoted herself to the task of his discovery and capture. Trembling beneath the weight of these reasons, Captain Cuttle lived a very close and retired life, seldom stirring abroad until after dark, venturing even then only into the obscurest streets, never going forth at all on Sundays, and both within and without the walls of his retreat, avoiding bonnets as if they were worn by raging lions. The captain never dreamed that in the event of his being pounced upon by Mrs. McStinger in his walks, it would be possible to offer resistance he felt that it could not be done he saw himself in his mind's eye put meekly in a hackney-coach and carried off to his old lodgings he foresaw that once immured there he was a lost man his hat gone mrs macstinger watchful of him day and night reproaches heaped upon his head before the infant family himself the guilty object of suspicion and distrust an ogre in the children's eyes and in their mothers a detected traitor a violent perspiration and a lowness of spirits always came over the captain as this gloomy picture presented itself to his imagination it generally did so previous to his stealing out of doors at night for air and exercise sensible of the risk he ran the captain took leave of rob at those times with the solemnity which became a man who might never return exhorting him in the event of his the captain's being lost sight of for a time to tread in the paths of virtue, and keep the brazen instruments well-polished. But not to throw away a chance, and to secure himself a means, in case of the worst of holding communication with the external world, Captain Cuttle soon conceived the happy idea of teaching Rob the Grinder some secret signal by which that adherent might make his presence and fidelity known to his commander in the hour of adversity. After much cogitation, the captain decided in favour of instructing him to whistle the marine melody, O oh, cheerily, cheerily, and Rob the Grinder attaining a point as near perfection in that accomplishment as a landsman could hope to reach, the captain impressed these mysterious instructions on his mind. "'Now, my lad, stand by. If ever I'm took, took, captain?' interposed Rob, with his round eyes wide open. "'Ah,' said Captain Cuttle darkly, "'If ever I goes away, meaning to come back to supper, "'and don't come within hail again, twenty-four hours after my loss, "'go you to Brig Place and whistle that here tune near my old moorings, "'not as if you was a meanin' of it, you understand, "'but as if you drifted there, promiscuous. "'If I answer in that tune, you shear off my lad "'and come back four-and-twenty hours arterwards. "'If I answer in another time, do you stand off and on?' and wait till I throw out further signals. Do you understand them orders, now?' "'What am I to stand off and on of, Captain?' inquired Rob. "'The horse-road.' "'Here's a smart lad for you,' cried the Captain, eyeing him sternly, "'as don't know his own native alphabet. Go away a bit, and come back again alternate. Do you understand that?' "'Yes, Captain,' said Rob. "'Very good, my lad, then,' said the Captain, relenting. "'Do it.' that he might do it the better captain cuttle sometimes condescended of an evening after the shop was shut to rehearse this scene retiring into the parlour for the purpose as into the lodgings of a supposititious macstinger and carefully observing the behaviour of his ally from the hole of a spicial he had cut in the wall rob the grinder discharged himself of his duty with so much exactness and judgment when thus put to the proof that the captain presented him at divers times with seven sixpences in token of satisfaction and gradually felt stealing over his spirit the resignation of a man who had made provision for the worst and taken every reasonable precaution against an unrelenting fate nevertheless the captain did not tempt ill fortune by being a whit more venturesome than before though he considered it a point of good breeding in himself as a general friend of the family to attend mr dombey's wedding of which he had heard from mr perch and to show that gentleman a pleasant and approving countenance from the gallery he had repaired to the church in a hackney cabriolet with both windows up and might have scrupled even to make that venture in his dread of mrs McStinger. "'but that the lady's attendance on the ministry of the Reverend Melchizedek "'rendered it peculiarly unlikely that she would be found in communion with the establishment. "'The captain got safe home again and fell into the ordinary routine of his new life "'without encountering any more direct alarm from the enemy "'than was suggested to him by the daily bonnets in the street. "'But other subjects began to lay heavy on the captain's mind. "'Walter's ship was still unheard of. No news came of old Saul Gills. Florence did not even know of the old man's disappearance, and Captain Cuttle had not the heart to tell her. Indeed the captain, as his own hopes of the generous, handsome, gallant-hearted youth whom he had loved, according to his rough manner, from a child, began to fade, and faded more and more from day to day, shrunk with instinctive pain from the thought of exchanging a word with Florence if he had had good news to carry to her the honest captain would have braved the newly decorated house and splendid furniture though these connected with the lady he had seen at church were awful to him and made his way into her presence with a dark horizon gathering around their common hopes however that darkened every hour the captain almost felt as if he were a new misfortune and affliction to her and was scarcely less afraid of a visit from florence than from mrs macstinger herself it was a chill, dark autumn evening, and Captain Cuttle had ordered a fire to be kindled in the little back parlour, now more than ever like the cabin of a ship. The rain fell fast, and the wind blew hard, and, straying out on the housetop by that stormy bedroom of his old friend, to take an observance of the weather, the captain's heart died within him when he saw how wild and desolate it was. Not that he associated the weather of that time with poor Walter's destiny— or doubted that if providence had doomed him to be lost and shipwrecked it was over long ago but that beneath an outward influence quite distinct from the subject-matter of his thoughts the captain's spirits sank and his hopes turned pale as those of wiser men had often done before him and will often do again Captain Cuttle, addressing his face to the sharp wind and slanting rain, looked up at the heavy scud that was flying fast over the wilderness of housetops, and looking for something cheery there in vain. The prospect near at hand was no better. In sundry tea-chests and other rough boxes at his feet, the pigeons of Rob the Grinder were cooing like so many dismal breezes getting up a crazy weathercock of a midshipman with a telescope at his eye once visible from the street but long bricked out creaked and complained upon his rusty pivot as the thrill blast spun him round and round and sported with him cruelly Upon the captain's coarse blue vest, the cold raindrops started like steel beads, and he could hardly maintain himself aslant against the stiff nor'wester that came pressing against him, importunate to topple him over the parapet and throw him on the pavement below. If there were any hope alive that evening, the captain thought, as he held his hat on, it certainly kept house and wasn't out of doors. So the captain, shaking his head in a despondent manner went in to look for it. Captain Cuttle descended slowly to the little back parlour, and seated in his accustomed chair looked for it in the fire, but it was not there, though the fire was bright. He took out his tobacco-box and pipe, and, composing himself to smoke, looked for it in the red glow from the bowl, and in the wreaths of vapour that curled upward from his lips. But there was not so much as an atom of the rust of Hope's anchor in either. He tried a glass of grog, but melancholy truth was at the bottom of that well, and he couldn't finish it. He made a turn or two in the shop, and looked for hope among the instruments. But they obstinately worked out reckonings for the missing ship, in spite of any opposition he could offer that ended at the bottom of the lone sea. The wind still rushing, and the rain still pattering against the closed shutters, the captain brought to before the wooden midshipman on the counter, and thought, as he dried the little officer's uniform with his sleeve, how many years the midshipman had seen, during which few changes, hardly any, had transpired among his ship's company. How the changes had come all together one day as it might be, and of what a sweeping kind they were. Here was the little society of the back parlour broken up and scattered far and wide, here was no audience for lovely Peg, even if there had been anybody to sing it, which there was not, for the captain was as morally certain that nobody but he could execute that ballad, as he was that he had not the spirit, upon existing circumstances, to attempt it. There was no bright face of Waller in the house. Here the captain transferred his sleeve for a moment from the midshipman's uniform to his own cheek. The familiar wig and buttons of Saul Gills were a vision of the past— Richard Whittington was knocked on the head, and every plan and project in connection with the midshipman lay drifting, without mast or rudder, in the waste of waters. As the captain, with a dejected face, stood revolving these thoughts and polishing the midshipman, partly in the tenderness of old acquaintance, and partly in the absence of his mind, a knocking at the shop-door communicated a frightful start to the frame of Rob the grinder, seated on the counter whose large eyes had been intently fixed on the captain's face, and who had been debating within himself for the five-hundredth time whether the captain could have done a murder, that he had such an evil conscience and was always running away. "'What's that?' said Captain Cuttle softly. "'Somebody's knuckles, Captain,' answered Rob the grinder. The captain, with an abashed and guilty air, immediately walked on tiptoe to the little parlour and locked himself in. "'Rob, opening the door, would have parlayed with the visitor on the threshold if the visitor had come in female guise. But the figure being of the male sex, and Rob's orders only applying to women, Rob held the door open and allowed it to enter, which it did very quickly, glad to get rid of the driving rain. "'A job for Burgess and Co., at any rate,' said the visitor, looking over his shoulder compassionately at his own legs, which were very wet and covered with splashes. "'Oh, how do, Mr. Gills?' The salutation was addressed to the captain, now emerging from the back-parlour, with a most transparent and utterly futile affectation of coming out by accidents. "'Thank'ee,' the gentleman went on to say, in the same breath, "'I'm very well indeed myself. I'm much obliged to you. My name is Toots, Mr. Toots.' The captain remembered to have seen this young gentleman at the wedding, and made him a bow. Mr. Toots replied with a chuckle, and, being embarrassed as he generally was, breathed hard, shook hands with the captain for a long time, and then, falling on Rob the Grinder in the absence of any other resource, shook hands with him in a most affectionate and cordial manner. "'I say—I should like to speak a word to you, Mr. Gills, if you please,' said Toots at length, with a surprising presence of mind. "'I say—Miss D.O.M., you know.' "'The captain?' with a response of gravity and mystery, immediately waved his hook toward the little parlour whither Mr. Toots followed him. "'Oh, I beg your pardon, though,' said Mr. Toots, looking up in the captain's face as he sat down in a chair by the fire which the captain placed for him. "'You don't happen to know the chicken at all, do you, Mr. Gills?' "'The chicken?' said the captain. "'The game chicken,' said Mr. Toots. The captain, shaking his head... Mr. Toots explained that the man alluded to was the celebrated public character who had covered himself and his country with glory in his contest with the knobby Shropshire One, but this piece of information did not appear to enlighten the captain very much. "'Because he's outside, that's all,' said Mr. Toots. "'But it's of no consequence. He won't get very wet, perhaps.' "'I can pass the word for him in a moment,' said the captain." "'Well, if you would have the goodness to let him sit in the shop with your young man,' chuckled Mr. Toots, "'I should be glad, because you know he's easily offended, and the damp's rather bad for his stamina. I'll call him in, Mr. Gills.' With that, Mr. Toots, repairing to the shop door, sent a peculiar whistle into the night, which produced a stoical gentleman in a shaggy white greatcoat and flat-brimmed hat, with very short hair, a broken nose, and a considerable tract of bare and sterile country behind each ear. Sit down, chicken," said Mister Toots. The compliant chicken spat out some small pieces of straw on which he was regaling himself, and took in a fresh supply from a reserve he carried in his hand. There ain't no drain of nothing short handy, is there? said the chicken. Generally, this here sluicing night is hard lines to a man as lives on his condition. Captain Cuttle proffered a glass of rum, which the chicken, throwing back his hand, emptied into himself as into a cask, after proposing the brief sentiment, "'Towards us!' Mr. Toots and the captain, returning then to the parlour and taking their seats before the fire, Mr. Toots began. "'Mr. Gill's Awast, said the captain. "'My name's Cuttle.' Mr. Toots looked greatly disconcerted, while the captain proceeded gravely. "'Captain Cuttle is my name, and England is my nation. "'This here is my dwelling-place, and blessed be creation Job,' said the captain, as an index to his authority. "'Oh, I couldn't see Mr. Gills, could I?' said Mr. Toots. "'Because—' "'If you could see Saul Gills, young gentleman,' said the captain, impressively, and laying his heavy hands on Mr. Toots' knee, "'old Saul, mind you, with your own eyes, as you sit there, you'd be welcomer to me than a wind astern to a ship becalmed.' "'But you can't see Saul Gills. "'And why can't you see Saul Gills?' said the captain, "'apprised by the face of Mr. Toots, "'that he was making a profound impression on that gentleman's mind, "'because he's invisible.' "'Mr. Toots, in his agitation, was going to reply "'that it was of no consequence at all, "'but he corrected himself, and said, "'Lor bless me!' "'That there man,' said the captain, "'has left me in charge here by a piece of writin'. "'But though he was almost as good as my sworn brother,' I know no more where he's gone, or why he's gone. If so be to seek his nevy, or if so be along of being not quite settled in his mind than you do. One morning at daybreak he went over the side, said the captain, without a splash, without a ripple, I have looked for that man high and low and never set eyes nor ears nor nothing else upon him from that hour. But good gracious, Miss Dombey don't know, Mr. Toots began. "'Why, I ask you, as a feeling heart,' said the captain, dropping his voice, "'why should she know? "'Why should she be made to know until such time as there weren't any help for it? "'She took to old sawgills, did that sweet creature, with a kindness and an affability, "'with a—what's the good of saying so? "'You know her.' "'I should hope so,' chuckled Mr. Toots, with a conscious blush that suffused his whole countenance. "'And you come here from her?' said the captain. "'I should think so,' chuckled Mr. Toots.' then all i need observe is said the captain that you know an angel and are chartered an angel mr toots instantly seized the captain's hand and requested the favour of his friendship "'Upon my word and honour, said Mr. Toots earnestly, "'I should be very much obliged to you if you'd improve my acquaintance. "'I should like to know you, Captain, very much. "'I really am in want of a friend, I am. "'Little Dombey was my friend at Old Blimber's, "'and would have been now if he'd have lived. "'The chicken,' said Mr. Toots, in a forlorn whisper, "'is very well, admirable in his way, "'the sharpest man, perhaps, in the world. "'There's not a move he isn't up to, everybody says so. "'But I don't know. He's not everything.' "'So she is an angel, Captain. "'If there is an angel anywhere, it's Miss Dombey. "'That's what I've always said. "'Really, though, you know,' said Mr. Tooth, "'I should be very much obliged to you if you'd cultivate my acquaintance.' Captain Cuttle received this proposal in a polite manner, but still without committing himself to its acceptance, merely observing, "'Aye, aye, my lad, we shall see, we shall see,' and reminding Mr. Tooth of his immediate mission by inquiring to what he was indebted for the honour of that visit." "'Why, the fact is,' replied Mr. Toots, "'that it's the young woman I come from. "'Not Miss Dombey. Susan, you know.' The captain nodded his head once, with a grave expression of face indicative of his regarding that young woman with serious respect. "'And I'll tell you how it happens,' said Mr. Toots. "'You know I go and call sometimes on Miss Dombey. "'I don't go there on purpose, you know, "'but I happen to be in the neighbourhood very often, "'and when I find myself there, why—why why I call?' "'Naturally,' observed the captain. "'Yes,' said Mr. Toots. "'I called this afternoon. "'Upon my word and honour, I don't think it's possible to form an idea of the angel Miss Dombey was this afternoon.' The captain answered with a jerk of his head, implying that it might not be easy to some people, but it was quite so to him. "'As I was coming out,' said Mr. Toots, "'the young woman, in the most unexpected manner, took me into the pantry.' The captain, seemed, for the moment to object to this proceeding, and, leaning back in his chair, looked at Mr. Toots with a distrustful, if not threatening, visage. "'Where she brought out,' said Mr. Toots, "'this newspaper. She told me that she had kept it from Miss Dombey all day, on account of something that was in it, about somebody that she and Dombey used to know. And then she read the passage to me. Very well. Then she said—wait a minute, what was it she said, though?' Mr. Toots, endeavouring to concentrate his mental powers on this question, unintentionally fixed the captain's eye, and was so much discomposed by its stern expression that his difficulty in resuming the thread of his subject was enhanced to a painful extent. "'Oh,' said Mr. Toots, after long consideration, "'oh, ah, yes. She said that she hoped there was a bare possibility that it mightn't be true, and that as she couldn't very well come out herself without surprising Miss Dombey, would i go down to mr solomon gills the instrument makers in this street who was the party's uncle and asked whether he believed it was true or had heard anything else in the city she said if he couldn't speak to me no doubt captain cuttle could by the by said mr toots as the discovery flashed upon him you you know the captain glanced at the newspaper in Mr. Toots's hands and breathed short and hurriedly. "'Well,' pursued Mr. Toots, "'the reason why I'm rather late is because I went up as far as Finchley's first to get some uncommon fine chickweed that grows there, for Miss Dombey's bird. But I came on here directly afterwards. You've seen the paper, I suppose?' The captain, who had become cautious of reading the news, lest he should find himself advertised at full length by Mrs. McStinger, shook his head shall i read the passage to you inquired mr toots the captain making a sign in the affirmative mr toots read as follows from the shipping intelligence southampton the bark defiance henry james commander arrived in this port to-day with a cargo of sugar coffee and rum reports that being becalmed on the sixth day of her passage home from jamaica in in such and such a latitude you know said mr toots after making a feeble dash at the figures and tumbling over them ay cried the captain striking his clenched hand on the table heave ahead my lad latitude repeated mr toots with a startled glance at the captain and longitude so-and-so the lookout observed half an hour before sunset some fragments of a wreck drifting at about the distance of a mile the weather being clear and the bark making no way a boat was hoisted out with orders to inspect the same when they were found to consist of sundry large spars and a part of the main rigging of an english brig of about five hundred tons burden together with a portion of the stern on which the words were written sun and h were yet plainly legible no vestige of any dead body was to be seen among the floating fragments Log of the Defiance states that a breeze springing up in the night, the wreck was seen no more. There can be no doubt that all surmises as to the fate of the missing vessel, the sun and air, port of London, bound for Barbados, are now set at rest forever, that she broke up in the last hurricane, and that every soul on board perished. Captain Cuttle, like all mankind, little knew how much hope had survived within him under discouragement, until he felt its death-shock. During the reading of the paragraph, and for a minute or two afterwards, he sat with his gaze fixed on the modest Mr. Toots like a man entranced, then, suddenly rising and putting on his glazed hat, which, in his visitor's honour, he had laid upon the table, the captain turned his back and bent his head down on the little chimney-piece. "'Oh, upon my word and honor! cried Mr. Toots, whose tender heart was moved by the captain's unexpected distress. "'This is a most wretched sort of affairs, this world is.' "'Somebody's always dying or going and doing something uncomfortable in it. "'I'm sure I should never have looked forward so much to coming into my property "'if I had known this. I never saw such a world. "'It's a great deal worse than blimbers.' "'Captain Cuttle, without altering his position, "'signed to Mr. Toots not to mind him, "'and presently turned round with his glazed hat thrust back upon his ears "'and his hand composing and smoothing his brown face.' Waller, my dear lad, said the captain, farewell. Waller, my child and boy and man, I loved you. He weren't my flesh and blood, said the captain, looking at the fire. I ain't got none. But something of what a father feels when he loses a son, I feel in losing Walter. For why, said the captain, because it ain't one loss but a round dozen— Where's that there young schoolboy with the rosy face and curly hair that used to be as merry on this here parlour come round every week as a piece of music? Gone down with Waller. Where's that there fresh lad that nothing couldn't tire nor put out, and that sparkled up and blushed so when we joked him about hearts delight, that he was beautiful to look at? Gone down with Waller. Where's that there man's spirit all afire that wouldn't see the old man hove down for a minute and cared nothing for itself? Gone down with Waller. It ain't one Waller. There was a dozen Wallers that I'd knowed and loved all holding round his neck when he went down, and they're a-holdin' round mine now." Mr. Toots sat silent, folding and refolding the newspaper as small as possible upon his knee. And Saul Gills, said the captain, gazing at the fire, poor nevilous old Saul! Where are you got to? You was left in charge of me, his last words was, Take care of my uncle. What came over you, Saul, when you went and gave the go-by to Ned Cuttle? And what am I to put in my accounts that he's a lookin' down upon respecting you? "'Sol Gills, Saul Gills, said the captain, shaking his head slowly catch sight of that there newspaper away from home with no one as knowed walter by to say a word and broadside to you brooch and down you pitch head foremost drawing a heavy sigh the captain turned to mr toots and roused himself to a sustained consciousness of that gentleman's presence my lad said the captain you must tell the young woman honestly that this here fatal news is too correct they don't romance, you see, on such pints. It's entered on the ship's log, and that's the truest book as a man can write. Tomorrow morning," said the captain, I'll step out and make inquiries, but they'll lead to no good. They can't do it. If you'll give me a look in at the forenoon, you shall know what I have heard. But tell the young woman from Cap'n Cuttle that it's over. Over. And the captain, hooking off his glazed hat, pulled the handkerchief out of the crown, "'wiped his grizzled head despairingly, "'and tossed the handkerchief in again "'with the indifference of deep dejection. "'Oh, I assure you,' said Mr. Toots, "'really, I am dreadfully sorry. "'Upon my word I am, though I wasn't acquainted with the party. "'Do you think Miss Dombey will be very much affected, Captain Gills? "'I mean, Mr. Cuttle?' "'Why, Lord love you,' returned the Captain, "'with something of compassion for Mr. Toots' innocence. "'When she weren't no higher than that, "'they were as fond of one another as two young doves.' "'Were they, though?' said Mr. Toots, with a considerably lengthened face. "'They were made for one another,' said the captain mournfully. "'But what signifies that now?' "'Upon my word and honour! cried Mr. Toots, blurting out his words through a singular combination of awkward chuckles and emotion. "'I'm even more sorry than I was before. "'You know, Captain Gills, I—I positively adore Miss Dombey. "'I—I I am perfectly sore with loving her.' the burst with which this confession forced itself out of the unhappy Mr. Toots, bespoke the vehemence of his feeling. But what would be the good of my regarding her in this manner if I wasn't truly sorry for her feeling pain, whatever was the cause of it? Mine ain't a selfish affection, you know, said Mr. Toots, in the confidence engendered by his having been a witness of the captain's tenderness. It's the sort of thing with me, Captain Gills, that if I could be run over, or—or or trampled upon, or— or thrown off a very high place or anything of that sort for miss dombey's sake it would be the most delightful thing that could happen to me all this mr toots said in a suppressed voice to prevent its reaching the jealous ears of the chicken who objected to the softer emotions which effort of restraint coupled with the intensity of his feelings made him red to the tips of his ears and caused him to present such an affecting spectacle of disinterested love to the eyes of captain cuttle that the good captain patted him consolingly on the back and bade him cheer up thank'ee captain gills said mr Toots. "'It's kind of you, in the midst of your own troubles, to say so. I'm very much obliged to you. As I said before, I really want a friend and should be glad to have your acquaintance, although I am very well off,' said Mr. Tooth, with energy. "'You can't think what a miserable beast I am. The hollow crowd, you know, when they see me with the chicken and characters of distinction like that suppose me to be happy, but I'm wretched. I suffer for Miss Dombey, Captain Gills.' "'I can't get through my meals. I have no pleasure in my tailor. I often cry when I'm alone. I assure you it'll be a satisfaction to me to come back to-morrow, or to come back fifty times.' Mr. Toots, with these words, shook the captain's hand, and disguising some traces of his agitation, as could be disguised on so short a notice, before the chicken's penetrating glance rejoined that eminent gentleman in the shop. The chicken, who was apt to be jealous of his ascendancy, eyed Captain Cuttle with anything but favour as he took leave of Mr. Toots, but followed his patron without being otherwise demonstrative of his ill-will, leaving the captain oppressed with sorrow, and Rob the grinder elevated with joy on account of having had the honour of staring for nearly half an hour at the conqueror of the knobby Shropshire One. Long after Rob was fast asleep in his bed under the counter, the captain sat looking at the fire and, long after, there was no fire to look at, the captain sat gazing on the rusty bars, with unavailing thoughts of Walter and old Saul crowding through his mind. Retirement to the stormy chamber at the top of the house brought no rest with it, and the captain rose up in the morning, sorrowful and unrefreshed. As soon as the city offices were opened, the captain issued forth to the counting-house of Dombey and Son. But there was no opening of the midshipmen's windows that morning. Rob the grinder by the captain's orders left the shutters closed, and the house was as a house of death. It chanced that Mr. Carker was entering the office as Captain Cuttle arrived at the door. Receiving the manager's benison gravely and silently, Captain Cuttle made bold to accompany him into his own room. "'Well, Captain Cuttle,' said Mr. Carker, taking up his usual position before the fireplace and keeping on his hat, "'this is a bad business.' You have received the news as was in print yesterday, sir, said the captain. Yes, said mr Carker. We have received it. It was accurately stated the underwriters suffer a considerable loss. We are very sorry. No help. Such is life. Mr Carker pared his nails delicately with a penknife and smiled at the captain, who was standing by the door looking at him. I excessively regret poor gay, said Carker, and the crew i understand there were some of our very best men among em it always happens so many men with families too a comfort to reflect that poor gay had no family captain cuttle the captain stood rubbing his chin and looking at the manager the manager glanced at the unopened letters lying on his desk and took up the newspaper is there anything i can do for you captain cuttle he asked looking off it with a smiling and expressive glance at the door "'I wish you could set my mind at rest, sir, on something it's uneasy about,' returned the captain. Ay! exclaimed the manager, "'what's that? Come, Captain Cuttle, I must trouble you to be quick, if you pleased. I am much engaged.' Looky here, sir,' said the captain, advancing a step. "'Afore my friend Walter went on this here disastrous voyage—' "'Come, come, Captain Cuttle,' interposed the smiling manager. "'Don't talk about disastrous voyages in that way.' We have nothing to do with disastrous voyages here, my good fellow. You must have begun very early on your day's allowance, Captain, if you don't remember that there are hazards in all voyages, whether by sea or land. You are not made uneasy by the supposition that young Watts's name was lost in bad weather that was cut up against him in these offices, are you? Fie, Captain! Sleep and soda-water are the best cures for such uneasiness as that. My lad, returned the captain slowly, you're almost a lad to me, and so I don't ask your pardon for a slip of a word. If you find any pleasure in this here sport, you ain't the gentleman I took you for. And if you ain't the gentleman I took you for, maybe my mind has called to be uneasy. Now this is what it is, Mr. Carker. afore that poor lad went away, according to orders, he told me that he warn't a goin' away for his own good or for promotion, he knowed it was my belief that he was wrong and i told him so and i come here your head governor being absent to ask a question or two of you in a civil way for my own satisfaction them questions you answered free now it'll ease my mind to know when all is over as it is and when what can't be cured must be endured for which as a scholar you'll overhaul the book it's in and therefore make a note to know once more in a word that i weren't mistaken that i weren't backered in my duty when i didn't tell the old man what waller told me and that the wind was truly in his sail when he heisted of it for Barbadoes harbour mr carker said the captain in the goodness of his nature when i was here last we was very pleasant together "'If I ain't been altogether so pleasant myself this morning on account of this poor lad, "'if I have chafed against any observation of yours that I might have fended off, "'my name is Eddard Cuttle, and I ask your pardon.' "'Captain Cuttle,' returned the manager, with all possible politeness, "'I must ask you to do me a favour. "'And what is it, sir?' inquired the captain to have the goodness to walk off if you please rejoined the manager stretching forth his arm and to carry your jargon somewhere else every knob in the captain's face turned white with astonishment and indignation even the red rim of his forehead faded like a rainbow among the gathering clouds i tell you what captain cuttle said the manager shaking his forefinger at him and showing him all his teeth but still amiably smiling "'I was much too lenient with you when you came here before. "'You belong to an artful and audacious set of people. "'In my desire to save young What's-His-Name "'from being kicked out of this place, neck and crop, my good captain, "'I tolerated you. "'But for once, and only once. "'Now go, my friend.' "'The captain was absolutely rooted to the ground and speechless.' go said the good-humoured manager gathering up his skirts and standing astride upon the hearth-rug like a sensible fellow and let us have no turning out or any such violent measures if mr dombey were here captain you might be obliged to leave in a more ignominious manner possibly i merely say go the captain laying his ponderous hand upon his chest to assist himself in fetching a deep breath looked at mr carker from head to foot and looked round the little room as if he did not clearly understand where he was or in what company you are deep captain cuttle pursued carker with the easy and vivacious frankness of a man of the world who knew the world too well to be ruffled by any discovery of misdoing when it did not immediately concern himself but you are not quite out of soundings, either, neither you nor your absent friend, Captain. What have you done with your absent friend, eh?' Again the Captain laid his hand upon his chest. After drawing another deep breath, he conjured himself to stand by, but in a whisper. "'You hatch nice little plots, and hold nice little councils, and make nice little appointments, and receive nice little visitors, too, Captain, Hey. Eh? "'said Carker, bending his brows upon him "'without showing his teeth any the less. "'But it's a bold measure to come here afterwards, "'not like your discretion. "'You conspirators and hiders and runners away "'should know better than that. "'Will you oblige me by going?' "'My lad,' gasped the captain, "'in a choked and trembling voice, "'and with a curious action going on in the ponderous fist, "'there's a many words I could wish to say to you, "'but I don't rightly know where they're stowed just at present. "'My young friend Walter was drowned only last night, "'according to my reckoning, and it puts me out, you see. "'But you and me will come alongside o' oh, one another again, my lad,' "'said the captain, holding up his hook, "'if we live. "'It will be anything but shrewd in you, my good fellow, "'if we do,' returned the manager with the same frankness, "'for you may rely.' I give you fair warning upon my detecting and exposing you. I don't pretend to be a mere moral man than my neighbours, my good captain, but the confidence of this house, or any member of this house, is not to be abused and undermined while I have eyes and ears. Good day!" said Mr. Carker, nodding his head. Captain Cuttle, looking at him steadily—Mr. Carker looked as full and steadily as the captain—went out of the office, and left him standing astride before the fire as calm and pleasant as if there were no more spots upon his soul than on his pure white linen and his smooth, sleek skin. The captain glanced in passing through the outer counting-house at the desk where he knew poor Walter had been used to sit, now occupied by another young boy with a face almost as fresh and hopeful as his on the day when they tapped the famous last bottle but one of the old Madeira in the little back parlour. The nation of ideas thus awakened, did the captain a great deal of good, it softened him, in the very height of his anger, and brought the tears into his eyes. Arrived at the wooden midshipman again, and sitting down in a corner of the dark shop, the captain's indignation, strong as it was, could make no head against his grief. Passion seemed not only to do wrong and violence to the memory of the dead, but to be infected by death, and to droop and decline beside it. All the living knaves and liars in the world were nothing to the honesty and truth of one dear friend." the only thing the honest captain made out clearly in this state of mind besides the loss of walter was that with him almost the whole world of captain cuttle had been drowned if he reproached himself sometimes and keenly too for having ever connived at walter's innocent deceit he thought at least as often of the mr carker whom no sea could ever render up and the mr dombey whom he now began to perceive was as far beyond human recall and the heart's delight with whom he must never foregather again and the lovely peg that teak-built and trim ballad that had gone ashore upon a rock and split into mere planks and beams of rhyme the captain sat in the dark shop thinking of these things to the entire exclusion of his own injury and looking with as sad an eye upon the ground as if in contemplation of their actual fragments as they floated past but the captain was not unmindful for all that of such decent and rest observances in memory of poor walter as he felt within his power rousing himself and rousing rob the grinder who in the unnatural twilight was fast asleep the captain sallied forth with his attendant at his heels and the door key in his pocket and repairing to one of those convenient slop-selling establishments of which there is abundant choice in the eastern end of london purchased on the spot two suits of mourning one for Rob the Grinder, which was immensely too small, and one for himself, which was immensely too large. He also provided Rob with a species of hat, greatly to be admired for its symmetry and usefulness, as well as for a happy blending of the mariner with the coal-heaver, which is usually termed a sou'wester, and which was something of a novelty in connection with the instrument business in their several garments which the vendor declared to be such a miracle in point of fit as nothing but a rare combination of fortuitous circumstances ever brought about and the fashion of which was unparalleled within the memory of the oldest inhabitant the captain and grinder immediately arrayed themselves presenting a spectacle fraught with wonder to all who beheld it in this altered form the captain received mr toots i'm took aback my lad at present said the captain and will only confirm that they ill news. Tell the young woman to break it gentle to the young lady, and for neither of them never to think of me no more. Special, mind you, that is. Though I will think of them when night comes on a hurricane and seas as mountains rowling, for which overhaul your Dr. Watts brother, and when found make a note on. The captain reserved, until some fitter time, the consideration of Mr. Toots's offer of friendship, and thus dismissed him. Captain Cuttle's spirits were so low in truth that he half determined that day to take no further precautions against surprise from Mrs. McStinger, but to abandon himself recklessly to chance and be indifferent to what might happen. As evening came on, he fell into a better frame of mind, however, and spoke much of Walter to Rob the Grinder, whose attention and fidelity he likewise incidentally commended. Rob did not blush to hear the captain earnest in his praises, but sat staring at him and affecting to snivel with sympathy, and making a feint of being virtuous, and treasuring up every word he said, like a young spy as he was, with very promising deceit. When Rob had turned in, and was fast asleep, the captain trimmed the candle, put on his spectacles—he had felt it appropriate to take the spectacles on entering into the instrument trade, though his eyes were like a hawk's—and opened the prayer-book at the burial service, and reading softly to himself in the little back parlour and stopping now and then to wipe his eyes, the captain, in a true and simple spirit, committed Walter's body to the deep. End of chapter thirty-two